Chapter Four of Half Past Bedtime by H. H. Bashford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four, Uncle Joe's Story. Marion's mummy used to read the Bible to her, so that she knew all about Adam and Eve. But she never knew that Eve had a little daughter, until Uncle Joe told her this story. Next to her mummy and daddy. Marion loved Uncle Joe better than anybody in the whole world. He lived in a little house tucked into a sort of dimple on the side of Fairbarrow Down, and a man called Mr. Parker lived with him and helped keep the place tidy. Uncle Joe had been a soldier in a lot of queer countries a long way off, and when Marion and Cuthbert asked him what he had fought for, he generally used to tell them that it was for lost causes. In between wars he had done lots of other things, such as trying to find out what caused diseases, or whether plants that grew in some places could be made to grow in others. Mr. Parker had been a soldier, too, a soldier of misfortune, he used to say, and he had saved Uncle Joe's life three times, and Uncle Joe had saved his life twice. Uncle Joe's face was a yellowish-brown, because he had been in the sun so much and had fever. But Mr. Parker's face was red, and one of his eyes was made of glass. Mr. Parker used to call himself a lone, lorn orphan, though he was much fatter than Uncle Joe, and afterward he would spit and say that it was rough weather in the Baltic. It was about a fortnight after Cuthbert and Doris had come back from the Arctic Circle that Uncle Joe told Marion this story while they were sitting under one of his apple trees. Some of the apple petals had begun to drop. Leaving the tiny weeny baby apples behind them, and the only really ripe apples in Uncle Joe's garden were the two apples in Marion's cheeks. But those aren't real apples," said Marion. "Well, it all depends," said Uncle Joe, "on what you mean by real." You see," said Mr. Parker, who had just come out to mow the lawn. There's more kinds of apples than a few. There's eaten apples and cookin' apples and pineapples and crab apples and there's oak apples and Adam's apples and the apples which you sees in little girls' cheeks. Kissing apples," said Uncle Joe. "They are one of the most important kinds." He began to fill his pipe. And now that I come to think of it," he said, "they're one of the oldest kinds too." As old as Mr. Jug?" asked Marion. "Or the little ice men?" "Well," said Uncle Joe, "I don't know about that, but they're certainly as old as Eve's little girl." And then he began to tell Marion all about her. "I'm not quite sure," he said, "what her name was. It might have been Gretchen or Olga, or it might have been Seraphine or Marie Louise, but I rather think that it was Bella." Of course, you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden, and how Adam and Eve had to leave it, not because the good Lord God wanted to turn them out, but because He knew that they could never be happy there any more. Every hour that they stayed, they would have become more and more miserable, and if they had come back, it would have broken their hearts. So He had to put two angels to guard the gate. You see. He had wanted them to be sort of grown-up babies in the loveliest nursery ever imagined, and to be able to go there and play games with them whenever he was tired of ruling the universe. 
But when once they had heard about growing up and choosing for themselves, and things of that sort, they could never have been babies any more, and it would have been cruel to keep them in the nursery. Of course they didn't understand that, and they thought it very hard, and very often they used to grumble, and when they had learned to write they used to send him angry letters and say bad things about him in books. That was chiefly because they had to work and learn to look after themselves, but that was the only way, as the good Lord God saw, in which they could ever be happy again. They weren't content, he thought, just to be my playthings. So now they must learn to be my comrades, and perhaps in the end that'll be the best for everybody, though it'll be a long, long time before they've learnt how. And then he sighed as he saw the empty nursery and all the animals that they used to play with, just as fathers and mothers sigh now when their babies grow up and have to go to school. So Adam and Eve had to leave the garden, and just outside it there was a big town, full of houses and factories and chimneys and men and women who worked all day long. Who were those men and women, and where did they come from? Well, it's rather hard to explain. You see, Adam and Eve, though never having grown up, had been in the garden for thousands and thousands of years. But outside the garden there were seas and deserts and thick hot jungles full of wild animals. Some of these animals had looked through the railings and had been very struck with Adam and Eve, and sort of wished in the bottoms of their hearts that they could have children just like them. Some of them wished so hard that their next lot of children actually did become a little like them and their grandchildren became liker still, and at last their great-great-grandchildren became real men and women. Of course they weren't garden men and women like Adam and Eve. They were just jungle men and women running wild. Well, after thousands of years these jungle men and women became so clever that they cleared away the jungle, and then they dug fields and planted hedges and sowed corn and built towns. And those were the people that Adam and Eve found when they left the garden and began to look for work. Later on Adam and Eve's children married the children of the jungle people, so that now all the people in the world are half garden and half jungle. "'Even clergymen?' asked Marion. Uncle Joe nodded. "'Yes, and policemen, and postmen, too. And lone-lorn orphans,' said Mr. Parker, and the man what comes to mend the bath. But that's jumping forward, said Uncle Joe, a long time, for when Adam and Eve left the garden they didn't even know what children were, and their hearts were full of bitterness against the good Lord God. That was one of the reasons why he thought it would be so nice for them to have a little girl of their own, because then, in time, they might begin to guess, he thought, something of what he felt toward themselves. So about a year after they had left the garden, little Bella was born, and they both thought that she was the loveliest baby that had ever been seen since the world began. Poor Adam and Eve were then living in a dark street on the outskirts of the town, and all that they could afford was one room on the top floor at the back. Adam had got work at one of the factories where they made boots and shoes, but he was only a beginner, of course and hadn't learnt much, and so his wages were very small. Sometimes Eve took in a little washing, or got a job from somebody of darning socks, 
but she did her best to keep their home tidy and some fresh flowers on the mantelpiece. Every day, too, she put crumbs on the window-sill, and soon she had made friends with the birds that came and ate them, and sometimes a bird would fly from the garden and feed from her hand and tell her the news. Both Adam and Eve, you see, knew the birds' language through having lived with them for so long, but they were never able to teach it to their children, and since they died no one has ever learned it. Soon after Bella was born, Adam got a raise in wages, but soon after that Eve had another baby, and then she had some more, and though they rented another room or two, they were always poor and often hungry. But after a while they began to think less often of their old life in the Garden of Eden, and sometimes they would even wonder whether they would go back there if the good Lord God gave them the chance. You see, in spite of their poverty and their hard work and the noise and smells of the great town, they had learned what it meant to have children, and to bend over their cots and kiss them good night. When Bella was eight she was rather a fat little girl with dark eyes and an impudent mouth, and she wore her hair in a long pigtail, and her nose was ever so slightly turned up. Adam and Eve thought that she was very beautiful, but everybody else thought her quite ordinary, and she spent most of her time in the streets, though she was always punctual for meals. She had a lot of friends, most of them boys, but every now and then she would get tired of them all, and those were the times when she would go exploring, and generally end up by hurting herself. Eve was too busy ever to bother much about what Bella did or where she went, and the Garden of Eden was the only place that she had strictly forbidden her to go near. It was one of the rules, of course, that nobody was to go near it, and there were angels at the gate with swords of flame, and this was a rule, Eve thought, that it would be very much worse for one of her children to break than for anybody else. So she had always told Bella never even to go up the street that led into the fields just outside the garden, and if Bella hadn't been feeling bored on this particular day—it was just a week after her birthday—and if it hadn't been so hot and the sun so scorching and the streets so dusty and everybody so cross, and if Bella hadn't been inquisitive just like her mother used to be, and if she hadn't sort of happened to be walking up that street, and if the fields at the end of it hadn't seemed so cool and so inviting, and if Bobby G., who was a great friend of hers, hadn't dared her to do it, well, there's no saying, but perhaps after all Bella wouldn't have stood looking at those dreadful gates. There was now only a strip of grass between her and the garden, and she could see it stretched there beyond the railings. It was the middle of the afternoon, and so heavy was the sunshine that the leaves of the trees were all pressed down by it. None of them stirred. There was no sound. The lawns beneath them looked like wax. And where were the angels? Bella held her breath. There were none to be seen. There were only the sentry-boxes. Very cautiously she took a step or two forward. Her bare feet made no noise. The bars of the gate quivered in the heat. Then she stopped again and listened. At first she heard nothing, but then, very, very faint, there came to her ears the ghost of a sound. It came and died, and came and died, 
like the waves of a sea hundreds of miles off. She crept nearer and listened again, and now there were two sounds rising and falling. They came from the sentry-boxes, one on each side of the gate. The angels inside were fast asleep. Bella bit her lip and crept forward. She could feel her heart jumping like a mouse in a cage. The sense of the garden came to meet her. She could see its curved and vanishing pathways. But what caught her eyes and made them grow round was a bending tree just inside the gate. With her hands on the bars she stood looking at it, and presently her mouth began to water, for from every branch of it there hung such apples as she had never seen in all her life, and from the lowest bough there hung an apple that was the biggest and most beautiful of them all. And then another thing happened, for as she pressed against the bars the great gate began to move. Very slowly it swung open, and still the angels were fast asleep. Her heart was beating now like two clocks at once. What an apple it would be to eat! A bright-colored bird hopped across the grass and stood looking up at her with an inquiring eye. She glanced round about her and over her shoulder, but there was nobody in sight. Dared she go in? She thought about the rules and what her mother had said, and then she remembered Bobby G. The angels were still breathing lightly and regularly. The bright-colored bird had flown away. Then she took a bold step and went into the garden and tiptoed softly up to the tree. The apple was so ripe that it was nearly ready to drop, and it was just on a level with the tip of her nose. It smelt like honey, and when she touched it it was cool as marble. Then she touched it again, and caught hold of it, and somehow or other it came off the tree. She lifted it to her lips, and it felt like a kiss. And then a voice behind her said, "'Well?' She jumped round, almost dropping the apple. It was the good Lord God who stood looking at her. "'What are you doing?' She hid the apple behind her, but his eyes shone through her like light through a window. She hung her head. "'Are you Eve's little girl?' he asked. Bella nodded. She couldn't say a word. "'I thought you must be,' he said. He put his finger under her chin. There came a sound like the rushing of a great wind. The two angels had heard his voice and drawn their swords and leapt into the garden. In another moment, Bella thought, they would have killed her. But the good Lord God held up his hand. The two angels stood one on each side of him, leaning on their swords and looking rather downcast. Bella held out her hand. The good Lord God bent forward and took the apple away from her. "'Well, what excuse have you,' he said, "'for stealing my apples?' Bella considered for a moment. Then she thought of one. "'Please, sir, Mother did it. She told me so.' "'But you knew the rules,' said the good Lord God. Bella hung her head again. She knew them quite well. "'And the rules must be obeyed,' he said. Bella began to tremble. There was a moment's silence. The two angels stood like statues, still leaning on their swords. Then the good Lord God spoke again. "'Look at me,' he said. Bella lifted her eyes and saw the world without end. He gave her back the apple. 
Well, you may keep it, he went on, on condition that you give half of it to Bobby G. Bella said, Thank you, sir. But that's not all, he continued. He bent forward and touched her cheeks. For I hereby ordain, he said, that now and forever every little girl and every little boy shall wear apples in their cheeks in remembrance of what you have done. They shall be known as the brand of Eden, the brand of Eden for little thieves, and their parents must see to it on pain of my displeasure that they shall never be allowed to fade away. Then he bent still lower and gave Bella a kiss, and the tall angels let her outside the gate, and that's why it is that the apples in little girls' cheeks are almost the oldest kind in the world. Uncle Joe lit his pipe. From where they were sitting they could see the country for miles and miles. Down below them the town looked quite small, and the spire of St. Peter's Church just like a toy spire. Far behind it, beyond the level cornlands, the sun was dropping into the evening mists. It grew rosier and rosier, until it almost looked like an apple itself. Mr. Parker winked at Marion. Rough weather, he said, in the Baltic. Then he spat in his hands and rubbed them together. Well, I must be getting along, he said, with this here lawn mowing. Eden had an apple tree, Eve a little daughter, tried to do as mother did, but the good Lord caught her. Wherefore tis ordained, he said, here and in all places, children shall henceforward wear apples in their faces. End of chapter 4